Go ahead and grab your seats as you get settled in. I want to welcome you, those of you in Mesa, those in South Mountain, Fountain Hills, our chapel services, online. It's such a privilege that we get to come together and worship the Lord today. And it's a privilege for me to get to teach you the word of God and be your pastor. And I want you to know that I love you. And I take that very seriously, the opportunity to just speak into your life from the word of God on behalf of the Lord and what he might have for you. And I'm so grateful that you're a part of this church. I'm going to be in Exodus 16 today, and I want to talk about manna from heaven. You've heard that phrase maybe when something unexpectedly good comes out of the middle of nowhere at just the right time, you'll say, it's just like manna from heaven. But where does that phrase come from? It's the Bible. So let's look at what it is talking about, what it actually means and how it applies to our lives today. It's about provision. And provision is a big deal to most of us, whether it's manna from heaven 3,500 years ago or a paycheck from your employer today. We all have needs and we depend on God to meet those needs, or at least we should, amen. What we're gonna talk about today is a really cool situation, uh, but it's good to be reminded that in 1 Corinthians 8, the apostle Paul wrote that everything that happened to them serves as an example to us. So it's not just like a neat story that happened one time, but there are principles we can take away that apply to us today. In Exodus 16, verse 1, it says, Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness of Sin. It wasn't like a sinful wilderness. That's just the name of it. It's coincidence. Between Elam and Mount Sinai. They arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. There, too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. You're going to notice that theme, aren't you? A lot of complaining from these guys. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moans, right? Like dramatic, like a junior high girl here. <laughs> there we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you've brought us into this wilderness to starve us to death. <laughs> this is like the ultimate pity party, isn't it? And what you see is they forgot how bad they had it in Egypt and they failed to appreciate how good God has been to them. And then they started to unfairly accuse their leaders, not just of bad leadership, but of outright evil. You brought us out here to starve us to death, didn't you? Yeah, that was my plan, totally. It's gonna starve you all to death. There's actually a term for this in psychology called cognitive distortions of magnification and minimization. So this is a cognitive uh, problem that we tend to have as humans. It's when you magnify the negative and minimize the positive in your life. I'm about to save you $100 worth of counseling right now. <laughs> if you're a counselor, sorry, I'm not trying to take food off your table, but I love the people that, I gotta help the people, you know? But you think about how often you do this, you magnify the negative, you minimize the positive. What are you likely to do that with? Well, those of you who are married, you know, you do it with your spouse. Like, oh, you never help me out with anything. You don't care about me and what I'm dealing with. Like, why do you treat me so badly? 
and you discount all the positive things they do for you, all the evidence to the contrary, right? You do it with your kids. You know, these kids are so difficult. Oh, these kids are like terrible. And then you discount all the joy they bring you and how much love they bring into your life. We do it with our churches. Like we go to church, you know, over time, you'd be like, oh, that church, man, they got a lot of problems up in there. They are not on top of things. And, you know, those people are, and we discount all the great things about our church, all the good things God does for us. This is magnification and minimization. When you do that and catch yourself doing it next time, the Holy Spirit's gonna remind you, you can just tell yourself, oh, I'm being crazy right now. Thank you, God. Here's what it says in verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day, the people can go out and pick up as much food as they need for that day. I will test them in this to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they will gather food, and when they prepare it, there will be twice as much as usual. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, By evening, you complainers, you will realize it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your complaints, which are against him, not against us. What have we done that you should complain about us? We're the ones that put our neck on the line in Pharaoh's court, mind you. Then Moses said, the Lord will give you meat to eat in the evening and bread to satisfy you in the morning, for he has heard all your complaints against him. So there's a lot of important lessons we can take away from this passage, and I'm gonna read more of it here in a second, but I heard my friend telling this story the other day, and it's a story that really every parent can relate to. If you have young kids, you've probably started to have this conversation like I have, and if you have older kids, you have definitely had this conversation. Every parent will have this conversation, but it goes kind of like this. Like I walk into my daughter's room and I tell her, put your toys away. You know, and, I, and I, we haven't articulated it quite to this extent, but I'm just prophetically telling you the conversation I will have. <laughs> and she'll look at you and be like, why do I have to put my toys away? You know, what's the big deal if I leave my toys out? They're my toys. And you'll say, oh honey, no, listen, see, you don't have toys. As your father, I use some of the money that I earned working in this thing called a job, and I gave you these toys to use and to enjoy. And she'll hold up one and she'll be like, no, uh no, uh dad, I, I used my allowance and I bought this one, it's mine. I bought it with my own money. And you'll say, oh honey, no, listen, see, you don't have money. Your dad, your mom, we have money, and we've allowed you to hold on to some of it because we love you and we wanna teach you about money. And even the money you got for your birthday or from allowance that you earned, if we charged you for all the food we gave you and all the things we did for you, by the time you turned 18, you'd be in the hole like a million dollars. No, on dad, all this stuff, it's mine, it's in my room. Oh, honey, no, see, you don't have a room. Your mom and your dad, we have a house. And we have designated a room in our house for you to sleep in for a limited amount of time. <laughs> and one day you're gonna move out of our house and you're gonna learn how the world really works. As funny as this is, you're like, it's hilarious, thank you. We do the very same thing to God. We tell God, 
keep your hands off my stuff. What's this pastor doing talking about my money? I want to remind you that God is your provider. The number one reason that Christians get confused about handling money and stuff is they get confused about who owns it all in the first place. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. So whose stuff is it? In Exodus 16, verse 4, God said, look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you, right? God made the manna come down from heaven supernaturally by his divine power. Can you imagine one of the Israelites saying, no, this is my manna. I picked it up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you picked it up. But who made it rain? It was God. But yet we get the same kind of attitude with God. God, don't tell me what to do with my money. You need to know you don't have money. God has all the money and he lets you hold on to some of it. And one of the reasons why is to test you. This is the next point. God is testing you. God is testing you. I remember when I was a freshman and going to Arizona State University and there's this bus system that drives you from the parking lot way far away to the campus. And I'm sitting on that bus one day, kind of minding my own business. And I saw another student I recognized from a sociology class. It's a big lecture class, hundreds of students in this class. And I had skipped class for a few days in a row because it was the first class of the day. And I was a lazy young adult who wanted to sleep in. And I saw this guy and I was like, hey, what's going on in class? Like, what did I miss? And he's like, oh, we got a test today. I said, a what? He's like, yeah, there's a test today. I'm like, mm, mm, mm. Sinking feeling in my stomach, break out in a cold sweat. It's a terrible feeling to find out there's a test and you had not prepared for it, isn't there? Maybe you just became a Christian recently or you didn't realize this, but God is testing you in how you handle what he provided for you. In Exodus 16, verse four, God said, I will test them in this to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. Now, the next part of this sermon for the next few minutes, I'll be honest, I would not teach this at another church. It's probably just like a little too much. It would go over a lot of people's heads, if I'm being honest, but Generation is not a normal church. You all know the Bible more than average. You love the word of God. You're just smarter than average. What can I say? I mean, you picked this church. Just know this though, like if you're a young Christian and you don't get all this, that's okay. You'll get the gist of it. And if you're a more mature Christian, I think this will help you to see some things. So God was testing them to see what whether or not they would follow his instructions. And so you have to ask yourself, okay, well, what were his instructions? Well, God was providing manna on a daily basis, and he told them that on the sixth day, they needed to gather twice the amount and then rest on the seventh day. And Moses says, this seventh day is a Sabbath day, a day of rest. Now, I want you to notice that God had not yet given the Ten Commandments but the principle of the Sabbath day already existed. And it goes all the way back to Genesis when God created the heavens and the earth in six days and on the seventh day, he rested. This principle was already established and later the principle was emphasized by the law. The fourth commandment, God says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember to do this, this day is holy and it's special, it's set apart. 
Now, back under the law in Old Testament times, if people worked on the Sabbath day, they were put to death. Talk about motivation to do the right thing. But observing the Sabbath day was for their benefits. It's a benefit to have a day off and rest. Now, Christians today, we are not living under the law or bound by the law to follow the Sabbath day. You're not going to get executed by your pastor for working seven days in a row. But you should still follow the principle of the Sabbath day because it's still a good thing for your benefit. And Jesus affirmed it in Mark chapter 2 when he said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Are you tracking so far? So if you don't take a Sabbath day today, you will not experience the full negative consequences of the Old Testament, but you will still suffer. You'll suffer not ever resting. Now, what I just did there was called systematic theology. It's where you look at the whole Bible and you understand God's words by reading the whole Bible. You see the principles throughout the whole Bible and how it applies to your life. And when you see the same principle applying multiple times or appearing multiple times throughout scripture, it builds up evidence that principle is a powerful principle with enduring application in the kingdom of God. If a principle appears only in one place and there maybe are even other places where other principles seem to contradict that, that's evidence that the first principle is not as strong of a principle with not as wide of application. Okay, so I use that exact same logic, that exact same systematic theology process to come to the obvious conclusion that all Christians should tithe the first 10% of their increase to God. Oh, it hasn't gotten good yet. You see, back in Exodus 12, Moses told the people, the firstborn, the firstfruits belongs to God. God said, it is mine. And it hadn't even been emphasized by the law yet, but that principle already existed and it goes all the way back to Genesis where Jacob tithed the first 10% of his increase to God. And Abraham gave the first 10% of his increase to God. The principle was already established, not by the law, it was emphasized by the law. Under the law, if you didn't tithe, you weren't gonna go to heaven. You understand? Now, Christians today, if we don't tithe, we're not going to miss out on heaven. Praise God. Because we're saved by grace, right? But we should still follow the principle of the tithe because it's a good thing and it's still for our benefit. Wisdom literature like Proverbs affirms it. The prophets like Malachi affirm it. Jesus affirmed it and he said, yes, you should tithe or this you should do. So if you don't tithe today, you won't experience the full negative consequences like the Israelites did under the law, but you will suffer because the first portion is still God, keeping it is still robbing him, returning it to him is still how we honor him, and his promise to bless us for honoring him is still valid. 
One reason that some Christians get stuck at JV level theology is because they don't understand how to see and apply God's principles. Or a biblical word for principles is precepts. The word precepts in Hebrew is pikudim, and it means proper, appointed, or mandated by God. If you look up the definition of precepts in the dictionary, read this with me. It says, a command or principle intended especially as a general rule of action. Do you know what a principle does? It's a general rule of action. A general rule that you can apply to many different specific circumstances. That's what a principle is. This word principle or precepts is different than the main Hebrew word for commandments or the law. When the Bible talks about the law or commandments, it uses the Hebrew word mitzvah. Principles only appears 24 times, but mitzvah appears 181 times in the Old Testament. So Christians will sometimes say, I don't have to tithe because I'm not under the law or the mitzvah. Side note, you notice that they never refuse to take a day off to rest 